When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Coming up on this week's show, a lost Atari game is found. A famous shooter comes to N64 and GameCube. And we go inside the world of Dreamcast development with Ross Kilgore. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each and every Friday with our great friends at Bitback Books. Now, one of my favourite books that they've done is Commodore Amiga, a visual compendium, a massive 420-page celebration covering more than 140 of the biggest Amiga games and bringing them vividly to life with gorgeous screen grabs and loading pages too and it features some absolute Amiga legends in here as well so we'll tell you more about that in just a bit but you can check it out on the rest of their retro gaming collection at bitmapbooks.com Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast episode number 372 your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me Dan Wood me Ravi Abbott and me Joe Fox and a very warm welcome to the podcast that every Friday takes you on a nostalgic trip back to the golden age of video games, brings you a special guest on the podcast each week, and brings you up to speed on all the big happenings in the world of retro from over the last seven days. And of course, being our first show of April, um, hopefully you survived April Fool's Day last weekend intact. I've got to say, I hate April Fool's Day. I find it hard to tell what's an April Fool's these days and what's reality. <laughs> See, normally, though, technology companies do, like, some quite big ones. I didn't see many April Fools around this year on my timeline. The only one, and I've got to admit, this one did catch me out. <laughs> There's a friend of mine who put on Facebook, he put a little link saying, I finally got my Intellivision Amico. Here's my unboxing video. <laughs> and I clicked it and fell for it. Guess what it was when I clicked through? Brick roll. Of course it was a Rickroll. Of course roll. it was. That was, the only, that was the only one that kind of got me this year. Because I did see that actually the Amazon said they were delivering them a few weeks ago, but I imagine that no one actually received one in the end. But yeah. do you guys get caught out by any this year? Uh, just just one for me. I always forget, you know, it's not on my mind that it's April 1st. Like, I forget it's a thing. And uh, I'm in a lot of forums for, like, Sega Mega Drive collecting and stuff like that. And the first one I saw was somebody found a game called Pirates, of, claiming they found a game called Pirates of Dark Water in a charity shop for a pound and like posting pictures of it and it's like a 700 pound game on ebay and then wow. the and i was like what and then the other one was somebody um on one of the selling pages putting up a game called Cel- uh, celtics versus lakers which is like the rarest mega drive game it commonly goes for like thousand like three four thousand pound and somebody put like 600 pound or best offer and i saw it and i was like oh what's going on <laughs> and screenshotted it and sent it to my friend jason who's a big collector you know he type of person who might kind of put that kind of money down and then I was like, wait, 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 wait. What's the date today? <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> took me a minute. What, what about you, Ravi? Anything for you, mate? No, I, I know deliberately not to look at this anymore <laughs> until at me. least 12 o'clock. Yeah, yeah on, much on, smarter on, than me, pal. <laughs> on the day, yeah. But uh, I, I have been keeping entertained. I watched a really good movie on video games the other day. Um, probably one of my favourite, which is uh, Tetris, the movie. And, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it's such a well well done film um it's it's a bit dramatic as well you know they always make them more dramatic but um really interesting story really well done 
yeah, absolutely loved it. And I've not been a fan of video game movies for quite a while. You know, uh, stuff like Sonic and uh, Mario. I was not massively impressed with what I've seen, but uh, this was really, really uh, smartly done. And, you know, Tetris is something that could be really boring. <laughs> um, they made it made it fantastic. Yeah, well, I know we've been covering that since it was first announced, so um, obviously it's finally available to watch now. Definitely on my to-watch list for the uh, long Easter weekend. And um, kind of going back to April Fool's Day, a few of the stories that we're covering in this week's show, um, I actually thought were April Fool's, but it turns out I'm not. Because there's actually some uh, <laughs> yeah. quite remarkable stories. You had to do we'll some checking <laughs> against all of Definitely them. Definitely yeah. did. So uh, we'll bring you up to speed on those in just a minute. And of course, um, second half of the podcast each week, we bring you a special guest on the show. And this is actually something else that we've been covering on the podcast for a couple of weeks. This is a uh, new retro game for the Dreamcast. Now, this is a game, it's a, a bit of a roguelike kind of game, which seems to be the uh, definitely the in vogue thing in retro right now. A game called Harlequest. Yeah, this was really interesting. So we had Ross Kilgariff on, who's produced and developed this game completely single-handedly. Um, and as it turns out, he's actually been working on it for about five years. Um, and he is from the industry. He is actually a uh, developer, multiplayer systems developer for um, Ninja Kiwi, you know, which we spoke about a little bit as well, you know, kind of like, you know, the modern kind of industry and stuff like that. But he's got a real passion for retro and the Dreamcast. And he's actually had a helping hand in a couple of games in the past and bringing a few, you know, kind of new Dreamcast games um, you know, in terms of development and stuff like that. But Harley Quest, he has been working on for the last four or five years, completely building it himself from the ground up, his own game engine and everything. And it was just a really interesting story just to kind of hear the trials and tribulations of making a Dreamcast game, you know, in 2023 because of some of the questions when I wrote them, it was a bit like, oh, how would you port that from PC to Dreamcast? Because it's coming out on both PC and Dreamcast. And hopefully, yeah. um, if he's successful with his Kickstarter, which is currently running at the moment, going really well uh, on like Xbox and Switch and PlayStation, and he was like, "Oh no, I'm I'm producing it for the Dreamcast, and then it's being ported to those you know those consoles and stuff." And it was just really it's a Dreamcast first game, it's a Dreamcast it? yeah. first game. So it's not just going to keep you know he's not just slapping it on a Dreamcast disc and there you go, it goes and it runs. You know, it it was really interesting, kind of like hearing about that and getting you know a little bit technical with it all and stuff, and just you know how do you kind of like produce. And, you know, send, a, you know, a game, a Dreamcast game in 2023 to production and get that out to the people and the fans and stuff. So it was really interesting. And, you know, I've been really loving having these like indie developers on and, you know, supporting in the indie devs as well. So really glad to see that it's doing well. We're only, what, four or five days into it at the point of recording this. So definitely stick around, listen to this interview. Really interesting. And then go check it out on Kickstarter as well. Yeah, because it's been running for a couple of days, mm. and uh, at the time of recording, I mean, there's uh, still 25 days to go, and he's already, I mean, he wants um, 11,250, he's already over seven grand, there we so go. well on his way there. Mm. I've got no doubts it's going to be a success, and uh, yeah, it looks great, actually, because I mean, this is not really a genre that I'm very good at, I mean, it's a roguelike 3D dungeon crawler. Yeah, d um, dungeon crawler, a little bit Dark Souls inspired, a little bit Gauntlet inspired, a yeah. little bit Pandemonium inspired as well. Diablo. Diablo, yeah, 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 so it was cool to hear all of his kind of like his journey with those games as well yeah so we're looking forward to hearing a bit about the development of this new dreamcast game and what it takes to develop a brand new game for uh, the sega classic console the dreamcast in 2023 our special guest ross kilgariff will be on the show in around half an hour from now now we didn't mention uh, some of these stories we did have to look at a couple of times to make sure that they were legit 
um, being that it was April Fool's Day over the weekend. This one, I must admit, it was announced on April Fool's Day and I thought, ah, this is an obvious one. But actually it turns out, this is true. A legendary shooter is coming to the N64 and the GameCube. Yeah, this is um, interesting. Xeno Crisis, which we've seen uh, come out before on mm. the um, Mega Drive, which was... Yeah. Uh, you know, a, a really good port, and I think these systems are obviously more than capable of running it, um, is getting a release on the N64 and on the GameCube. And I found this really interesting that they're actually doing it on a GameCube disc. Yeah. Um, looking at their um, Twitter, they're saying that um, it's it's not very cost-effective. You need a modded system to play it, but there is one factory left that still produces GameCube discs. So, you know, the GameCube discs with those uh, smaller ones and uh, yeah. a bit of an odd size. So you still need a modded, modded one, but it's going to actually come out on the disc, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. I've never actually modded a, a GameCube before. I don't know. Is, is it an easy system to mod, do we know? It's Nintendo, isn't it? So probably not. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, may, maybe there'll be some... Uh, they can hack a Wii U in his sleep. Yeah, yeah, yeah true. There'll be some soft mod <laughs> stuff, yeah. Yeah, there'll be some soft mod stuff probably. Um, I mean, I, I'm, you know me, I'm not into modding and stuff like that. So, um, you know, apparently, yeah, I, I've, I've read a few things saying that, you know, it's it's really cool that it's ready to go. It's already been manufactured. Manufacturing's completed and they're actually going to be posting them out uh, in the next three to four weeks. So kind of expected it for it to be starting getting into people's hands like early May, late April, which I think mm. is really awesome. No, you know, no kind of like you got to wait six months or, or anything like that. Uh, but yeah, I've read that there's a few kind of like region locks to it. And, you know, like you say, like requires mods and stuff. So from what I've understand, it will run on your N64, but you need to make sure you get the right order, the right region one. Um, and there's a few kind of like workarounds and stuff to make it work. They've got a ROM available as well. So you can buy it oh, that's in, good. Just, in just digital download ROM yeah. kind of form. And then yeah. put it on your EverDrive and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, like I, an ISO ROM, I think that's yeah. what they were calling it, yeah. Okay, that's cool. Do we know if the Mega Drive and the Dreamcast version of it just ran, or did you have to have like modded systems for them? Because I, I've played Xenocrast, I've played it on Xbox, and I've played it on Dreamcast as well, but it wasn't my Dreamcast. Now I've got a, I've got a feeling, yeah, Mega Drive in particular. I mean, you know, they, yeah. they just generally just new play. cartridges just plug in and play. There's yeah, not really yeah. any kind of much protection. Really. Dreamcast, you probably need that mill CD one. Um, yeah, maybe, uh, you, you yeah. know, you know, one of the earlier versions of the Dreamcast to play. Thing, but that's the case with a lot of releases. But also, it's um, it's great to see that Final Vendetta is coming out on vinyl as well. Yeah, which, um, yeah, yeah. And the same, uh, you know, Utah Saints uh, helped mm. uh, with that album, and yeah, just pretty amazing to have a, a double beautiful vinyl release coming out. I love these music discs, and uh, I think this will work well with the uh, Streets of Rage one as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was really cool. I saw it was actually Utah Saints. I saw who posted that. I think it's got mm. about four exclusive tracks by them yeah, on there. You need to say, you, you, Utah Saints. <laughs> <laughs> you, 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 Utah Saints. Yeah, no, that was really cool. I saw that. because And then Dan sent it over saying like, never mind, Zeno Crisis, have you seen this, guys? <laughs> <laughs> so it's all from uh, Bitmap Bureau. Um, mm-hmm. We've had those guys on the show before, and the Utah Saints as well, if you want to listen back to that episode. Um, and Lee Mintram as well. Uh, he's involved in the soundtrack for Final Vendetta. He's got that great artwork as well on the cover of the vinyl that I think is just going to look gorgeous in a, on a 12-inch mm. release. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're both available to a pre-order right now from our mates at Bitmap Bureau. So to check that out, I'll uh, link up their tweet in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, we always love it when long-lost games 
get discovered. And this one's got a really interesting, in fact, slightly sad story behind it. But this is a game that's being found, and they assume this game was completely lost for 40 years. And this is what's been described as a toy version of Battleship for the Atari 2600, a game called Sonar. Yeah, so this was a... I've been doing a little bit of research with this. So this was... It's only been dumped this last week, but it was actually discovered last year. So I was like, oh, is this an old Mm. news article? Because I've seen it in quite a few places, but it's because people are getting their hands on it now. So that's why it's kind of hitting the news. And we didn't... I didn't hear about this at all when it was found in 2022. But like you say, so Sonar, it's based on battleships, but it uses sonar frequencies to play it. So you don't need two screens for the Atari 20... on your Atari 2600. Works on one on one TV. I um, thought you were going to say you need a sonar to play. Yeah, like, what you need is a sonar, two a TVs, ship. or a, two, or a dolphin, two Atari twenty six. No, you only need one Atari twenty six hundred. Well, this was meant to be what it would do, and then it was going to utilize. Um, so the players wouldn't like pick where they would put their battleships because obviously, if me and Ravi were playing it, I'd just go, "Well, you've put your battleships there. It's all covered, you know, by the ocean." But then it, the, it was going to utilize the speaker port on the Atari 2600, which oh, was wow. only actually on some really early models. And then you'd be able to connect speakers to it. And then it was going to produce a stereo sonar sound for you well, to use. That, there's that kind of, um, if you've ever watched like war films with submarines, mm. they've always got that where they turn the sonar on and it's like, yeah, maybe it will do a version of that. Yeah. And that's what, that's essentially what it was going to do, which, you know, at the time it was going to come out in 1979. So, you know, 44 years ago now. So I guess that would have been really ahead of its time, but um, I'm not too sure of the story of what happened and why it didn't come out. If you could enlighten me, Dan. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure why it got cancelled, but basically it was a game that never got finished right. by the sounds of it. And it's been something that I've seen on... So, I mean, like you said, this version is available to play now. Mm. There are some missing features and there are some bugs in there as well, like screen flickering and things like that that they probably would have fixed yeah. if it went to market. But I think the story of how it was discovered was quite interesting. So it actually turns out that the uh, the guy who made this game at Atari back in the day, he didn't have a copy of it anymore. Right. Um, he didn't have a copy of the, the source code or anything like that, so they assumed this was a game that was completely lost. Mm. But then it turns out, you know, you often get these kind of, particularly in America, you'll get like, you know, boot sales or whatever or posts where people will come and just get like a big collection yeah. of old Atari carts and stuff like that. Well, it turns out that um, apparently this guy, he went to collect a big collection of floppy disks from someone who advertised them, mm. um, from a guy called Jim Snyder. So basically Jim's family were selling these off because Jim passed away right. a couple of years ago. And he worked for Atari back in the 1980s. So um, this Atari Age forum user, um, who said he, he's the one who got a hold of the prototype, so he went to meet um, Jim's daughter, and she pretty much gave him everything that he had in his collection, all this stuff that Jim worked on at Atari back in the 80s. So a load of floppy disks and carts and stuff like that. Turns out, actually, the family had actually thrown quite a lot of them away. Right. Which is quite heartbreaking. Mm. Apparently they'd offered them to a, a video game museum who declined them. Oh, God. Which sounds very bizarre. Yeah. But what was left, actually, they give it to this uh, this user on Atari Age, who has uh, managed to find a copy of uh, Sonar on there, the unfinished prototype. They've, they've also uh, posted the ROM on there as well. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it contains a few fixes, uh, which is pretty cool. So they're already, like, you know, fixing it and... Uh, making some like adjustments. I, I think Atari Age is such a good 
forum and like resource uh you know uh, for, for finding these games and doing them up and even like packaging them yeah it is amazing that this kind of stuff can be saved brad stewart was a guy who uh, worked on that atari originally he's a guy that thought you know it was completely lost but obviously as it turns out i mean it's kind of heartbreaking to me that they threw away a lot of the discs because it makes you wonder what else would have been found yeah in that collection makes you wonder how many like early builds or you know other unreleased games and stuff like that so but it's always incredible when you find that, like, you know, you think this day and age, especially Atari, Atari yeah. 2600, which is, like, say, over 40 years old now, you would have thought everything's been discovered by now and stuff like that. But it's, it's just crazy how, how many things turn up in, like, in attics and at car boot sales. And, you know, it was only the other week we were talking about the Michael Jackson game, you know, yeah. that, that was discovered. So it is crazy. And then as Ravi says, you know, it's then amazing that these unfinished games then get, they get dumped and then people you know, they finish them and fix them and make it playable for people. It's absolutely amazing. So, yeah, very cool to see a new playable Atari game in 2023. So you want to download the ROM that is on the yeah, Atari Age thread. So I'll link that up in the show notes as well. Now, of course, doing a show like this and covering the history of technology as the years go on, I mean, it is a sad fact of life that we're going to be losing more and more of the pioneers of the industry. And I was very sad to read that over the last week, Gordon Moore, who is an absolute legend of the IT industry has passed away aged 94. And if we're talking accolades, I mean, you know, he was a co-founder of Intel, um, also Fairchild Semiconductor as well. And uh, yeah, I think if you've got a law named after you, that kind of puts you up there, doesn't it? Because he was the guy behind Moore's Law that has been part of the IT industry for decades now. Yeah, he, he really helped establish Silicon Valley, you know, um, mm. coming up with those like observations back in 1965 and uh, them still being relevant today is uh, really important. And, you know, computers were seen as kind of a an alien thing that would be, uh, you know, stuck at home or, or, or be in a, in a lab or, or be somewhere, you know, not integrated with your whole life or not like a laptop or anything. And he really, really helped get that uh, kind of integration and, turn them into consumer goods. Uh, it's really, really interesting to hear about him. Uh, yeah, and Moore's Law, I mean, I remember reading about that in magazines and stuff. The idea is basically that, yeah, the amount of um, integrated, the transistors on an integrated circuit on a microchip would basically double every year. And then as new technology came along that applied to stuff like uh, the improvement of sensors and pixels and digital cameras, and you know, all of that was kind of tied into Moore's Law. Um, that basically meant, you know, and I think it's interesting because there is kind of, this kind of falls on two sides, really. There are some people in the industry, and, you know, if you look at Moore's Law and Wikipedia, it kind of talks about this a bit more, who think that Moore's Law is now kind of passed now and it doesn't apply anymore. Um, for example, the the CEO of uh, NVIDIA, he says Moore's Law is dead now. We've kind of passed that point. Whereas um, the Intel CEO actually reckons that, you know, this is still a thing. So, it is interesting, though, because to me, it kind of feels like over the last decade, in many ways, the speed of which kind of computers and stuff have improved has kind of slowed down a bit compared to the early days. But yeah, it's interesting because maybe like in the industry, you know, uh, industrial computers, there's probably crazy stuff mm. going on that we don't know about. But like the consumer ones, I, I do think you're right. It's slowed down. But um, it's interesting that stuff like this has stuck around for so long that these kind of pioneering ideas and laws and tests like um the Turing test you know um yeah is, is still around and it kind of really helped shape it and also it's really interesting that he kind of became a billionaire after investing you know five hundred dollars it shows how much of a <laughs> of a kind of visionary he was and uh sad to see his passing but uh i think his legacy will live on with the uh, moore's law 
Yeah, so uh, rest in peace, Gordon Moore. And if you want to read more about him, there's a really nice article on uh, BBC News um, explaining quite a lot about his history as well. So if you want to have a bit of a deep dive into Gordon's history, uh, I'll put that in our show notes as well. Now, we talked about lost Atari games being found after 40 years. And Joe kind of mentioned that, you know, we, we thought we'd seen everything from Atari now. You're thinking kind of the more modern years, you know, we're kind of getting into PlayStation 2 territory here. There can't be much to learn that hasn't been leaked on the internet or printed in magazines about games that came out then, particularly cheat codes that it turns out nobody knew about for 20 years in the game Gran Turismo 4. Uh, yeah, this this is, a I, I wouldn't say as mind-blowing <laughs> as finding, you know, lost games and stuff like that, but this has come from uh, Push Square uh, via a uh, Twitter user who was just kind of like, playing with, you know, Gran Turismo 4, I was going to say GTA 4, then playing with Gran Turismo 4 and just kind of like going through some of the options in there and talking about like how, you know, Gran Turismo 4 is one of the best-selling Gran Turismo games and, you know, one of the best Gran Turismo games there was. And it came out in 2004 for the PlayStation yeah. 2. Which blows so, my mind that game is yeah. 20 years old now. <laughs> yeah, so it's 19 years old. And uh, it was just very like, oh, by the way, here's some of the cheat codes in the game as well. And pretty much that's kind of just like spun like thousands of people's heads that there was like these undiscovered cheat codes in the game. And now it doesn't surprise me that they, they weren't, they weren't discovered because of um, the kind of parameters to use the cheat codes are, are pretty crazy. So in a lot of the Gran Turismo games, and I remember my brother playing these when I was younger, there's a lot of like 24 hour races and stuff like that, where you would literally have to race for 24 hours you know, to like unlock like a gold car or something crazy like that in the that, game. That was a lot of cans of monster you needed. A lot of cans of monster and stuff like that, you know, and this is like 24 hours real time. And mm. these cheats can only be activated once you have 365 in-game days playtime. That's, <laughs> That's yeah. mad, but I do think these cheats are the ones that Dan needs because he always complains oh, yeah. to me about the... <laughs> Getting the licenses and this uh, yeah. this automatically gives you a pass, which yeah, is pretty it awesome. It does. So uh, I'm not going to sit down and go through every single combination for all the different cheats because, you know, they're quite long-winded. Um, you know, very similar to GTA is in, in that fact, you know, very up, down, left, right, L1, L2 kind of thing. Um, That's classic cheats. Yeah, but, you know, you go to like the main menu and there's a cheat for 10 million credits. So obviously you can use the credits to go, you know, do your cars up and buy cars and stuff like that. One to automatically pass a a license, automatically pass gold license, and automatically pass gold event. Um, and this allows you to skip a lot of these twenty four hour races that I was going on about earlier on. Do so it so it gives you the ability, you know, to skip things and stuff like that. But I can't help but think if you've got that much game time, you probably would have done these things by then in the game. Yeah. You know, but you know, it it just doesn't surprise me they've not been discovered. But you know, I. Sometimes these articles say they've never been discovered. I'm sure somebody probably found them at some point. It you just know, you um, know, it was never put anywhere in a magazine or anything like that or in a cheat book. I think, like, maybe the older stuff, you know, with cartridges and, like, Game Shark and Game Genie, where you can kind of inspect it and look at it and maybe, like, you know, find cheats that way. Um, maybe that doesn't apply to some of the older, later ones, and uh, there might be... Up, you know, later games that came out on later consoles or CD and stuff like that. So there might be, uh, you know, more cheats hidden that we don't know about. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you're talking like PlayStation 2 games. I mean, they were delivered on DVD mm. mainly. So, you know, the, the games are a lot bigger than, you know, a Mega Drive 
ROM yeah. that was only a couple of megabytes. You know, you're talking potentially something that's like four and a half gigabytes here. So that is a lot of code to go through to kind of find just a couple of lines to, in to, there. To isn't poke it? about and, you know, yeah. Yeah. So um, it is very cool, though. And I think cause often these cheat modes are just, I mean, as we always know from, you know, the earliest days of video games, cheat modes are generally in there for developers to test parts of the game mm. without having to go through it. And, you know, <laughs> I imagine in the offices, they probably didn't have time to, uh, you know, sit down and play these uh, 24-hour endurance races just to kind of test what was going on next. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it doesn't surprise me that they're still buried in there. It doesn't quite say how this guy discovered it, though, does it? No. And how, how the remainder secret for so Yeah, long. It, it, I, I was thinking, you know, when Ravi was saying then about, like, going through the code and stuff like that, I was like, has he gone through the code of the game or... Is he just, you know, he's always known about it and just discovered by, mm. by accident, you know, <laughs> or was just literally just doing, sat there doing, you know, up, down, left, right, R1, L1, L2 kind of yeah, thing. There's got to be one there's of gotta these There's got to be one, you know, it. obsessed with like, you know, because those, those kind of cheat codes, I, I remember, you know, in the PS2 days, a lot of games would have quite similar, you know, cheat codes, like with the GTA ones, mm. they all started the same. You know, it was kind of like the first, the first eight kind of com, you know, button inputs would be the same, followed by like one or two different inputs. So you know, yeah. who's who knows? You know, it could have just been playing around with it and it happened. Um, but it, it just three hundred and sixty-five. You know, maybe somebody can clear that up and tell me that a day is only an hour in the game or something like you know, and a day in the game is only an hour in real time, maybe. But um, the way it's reading, that says to me you need three hundred and sixty-five days of playtime, which is just crazy. But I could, I could be wrong on that one. Yeah, which should be fair. I imagine there are people that have played it for that long. Yeah. In 19 years. Yeah. You know, there are some pretty... Gran Turismo, never really a series I was into all that much. I mean, I'm a bit more of a, just a straight up kind of arcade mm. racing fan, as you know, you know, stuff like Ridge Racer and that. But yeah, very cool to see that in there. I love the fact this guy's just put it out there. He, he could have been like, oh, I thought everyone knew that. Yeah. And everyone's like, wow, why are you blowing my mind? <laughs> so if you want to see how to do those cheats, I'll stick that in our show notes as well. Now, this next game looks incredible. Um you know, we, we love indie games. Obviously, we're going to be talking to an indie developer in just a minute. Um, but this one kind of takes me back to a very cosy era. Thinking about, you know, the the early 2000s as well. You know, maybe being there at your family PC that might have been in your kitchen while your mum was behind you doing the washing up and chatting to your friends on MSN Messenger. Well, this new game takes you right back to those classic days of the internet. Yeah, it's 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 kind of a reimagined version of what it's like to be in 2005 with all the mm. kind of cuteness and <laughs> nice niceties about it. Um you, you won't have a slower connection or anything on that, but it does look really interesting. So this is a indie title that's coming out on uh, Windows, MacOS and Linux and uh it it looks really cool. It's called Videoverse. Um it's done in that like anime style. Mm, mm. And it's and it's it's weird because it's it's nostalgic about the period of time on the internet when I would say kind of creativity and people creating their own corners was probably the biggest. Like you know, when I had a MySpace profile, the amount of people would hack the MySpace and they would have their own graphics and they would have you know their whole own design or there'd be like a tumblr or a kind of blogging platform that or a, a midi song playing or something when you went on yeah yeah and uh, all of these platforms it, like thrived on creativity and when you had stuff like facebook and stuff then it all kind of fell into that like algorithm and it had that clean look and mm. and you know this is about that kind of period of of something missing but also it's 
it's very like, oh, yeah, this is what the 2000s were like when it really wasn't. Like uh, <laughs> some of the stuff looking in here, the interfaces, they do look very kind of modern. Clean. Clean, the word, yeah. yeah, the word you yeah. used earlier on. Like, yeah. where are the pop-ups, Joe? <laughs> yeah, where, where's the pop-ups? And all We the, didn't all... have pop-up blockers back then, you know, it was hell. <laughs> it, it all runs far too quick. <laughs> yeah, but I like the um, the way that it looks like it's it's drawn and it's it, it's got this hand-drawn kind of feel about the whole thing. Well, this is a game, it's called Videoverse, mm. isn't it? Yeah. So it's um, a game that's, uh, there's a free demo that you can try yourself as well. Um, and looks like it was for the uh, the Storyteller Festival that's been on recently, you know, celebrating kind of adventure games. And uh, yeah, it does look good. I mean, um, it kind of reminds me, I was trying to think before we started recording kind of other games that are in this vein that have come out over the last few years. You mentioned one, Ravi, a game called um, Her Story, um, that was like an FMV game that kind of had a bit of that, you know, Windows. XP yeah, you were kind of like on it. an old computer going through video game, uh, through, through video archives. And uh, yeah, that, that that was really nice. The one I was thinking of, actually, I've just found it. It's a game called Emily is Away. Okay. I don't know if you played that. It came out around uh, 2015. I don't know. And that. again, it's like a, an adventure game and you use like MSN Messenger. Oh, okay. And it's basically a Windows XP desktop. And it's actually, actually, I think it's not MSN, it's AIM, you know, um, America Online. So yeah, it kind of reminds me of that really. So kind of a story that's driven with this kind of retro 2000s interface in there as well. And for some reason, I don't know what it is. It's just maybe because... You know, today, like you said, Ravi, everything just feels a bit kind of corporate and a bit kind of safe, doesn't it? You know, like yeah. the user interface of MSN, you know, MSN Messenger. It's kind of like, you, like choose your, you choose your platform and you're stuck with it. And like, yeah, I love the kind of how it was, you know, still people building their own websites in a way and uh, how it was really nothing looked pretty or uniform. <laughs> it was all just complete chaos, wasn't it? And this game also plays with, the idea of a community as well. So um, it says you can be a jerk, you can be sweet, you can be supportive, you can kind of play the middle ground and uh, set the tone of the community that you're in and uh, morph it and adapt it. And, and I think, you know, those early days of the internet were like where we met and stuff and, you know, ended up forming communities. And I'm sure you've got friends that you've had since those early days where you're in some weird fan community about something. Oh. <laughs> I've got friends I met an IRC that I've never met in real life, but I've been friends with for like 20 years. Yeah, I've, I've got people yeah. that I met, you know, on MySpace that I've been gaming with, for yeah. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. since back then. Yeah, this does look really good though. And it's um, kind of, yeah, that classic MSN kind of style where you, you message people and the story builds up as well. It's got a bit of a kind of anime kind of look to the artwork as well. Yeah, yeah. It, it looks really yeah. nicely done. And as Joe said, you know, it makes you feel incredibly old as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, the, yeah. The people are nostalgic for 2003. <laughs> it, this, yeah. Honestly, I was saying to Ravi earlier, this 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 made me feel so old because it was like, I remember, you know, your corners and stuff. Like, that was kind of like me coming online when I was like 12, 13 and, you know, kind of like... Joe Zemo <laughs> <start>, blog. <laughs> yeah, starting to talk to girls and stuff on these kind of things. Like, and then it leading into MySpace and Bebo. And I was like, oh my God, was that 20 years ago now? Like, that's crazy. You know, as we get older and those, those email addresses and stuff we set up then, I won't dox Joe, but you've got a typical old school Hotmail username. I do. <laughs> I do. Like, yeah. 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 Which is like, you know, I think I've got, I've got one somewhere that I don't use anymore. There's something like, you know, I'm, I'm the badass dude, 1984, something like that. You I know, even remember there was like a, a a website that got really famous that was like 
kind of Borat style back then. It was a homemade one, which was like, hello, how are you? And it was like <laughs> a, a HTML one. And I'm sure that was the influence for Borat. Um, yeah. But uh, I loved all that kind of early web stuff. And uh, I love going on, you know, the Wayback Machine or the GeoCity archives and kind of checking out that world. That is one thing you don't realise as well. Cause, I mean, you know, when I think of like the old internet, I generally think of like 1995, you know, like those early Netscape kind of days. But actually, I did a video on my YouTube channel probably about two years ago where I used Wayback Machine to browse the early 2000s web. And in many ways, even though it doesn't kind of feel as long ago as the 90s, obviously, but web design and stuff has changed a hell of a lot yeah. in 20 years when you look back. Wait for AI so, web design done. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, already here, I think, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? So. Yeah, but uh, so if you do want a, a cosy trip back to the early 2000s, um, this new game is called uh, Videoverse. Um, going to be released a full game at the end of this year. It's a, well, quarter three, 2023, on our Windows, Mac, and Linux. But there is a free demo that I'll link up in our show notes if you want to try that so far. Now, of course, we do have a little reminder that Patron is what makes this podcast possible. We bring you a new episode out every week, nearly up to uh, coming up to our eighth year next year of doing this podcast every single week, bringing you a guest. Hell of a lot of work goes into this podcast, and we just want to say a massive thank you to our incredible community of patrons who uh, basically make it possible for us to keep doing the show each week. And we were saying the other day, because we had um, our patrons hangout uh, last Sunday of the month, we do this every month, where we invite all our patrons on a big video call where we just nerd out about all things retro, everything like that. And you said to me the other day, Joe, you said, uh, you know, that is one of my favourite things, you know. Patron, it's not so much, you know, you're not even that bothered about the financial side of it. It's more the great community that we've built up there. Yeah, the, the community and, like, the culture that we've built and, you know, with with our Patreon. And, and like I say, the, the money keeps it going for us. Like, I'm not going to shy yeah. away from that and stuff. And it was absolutely amazing, you know, in lockdown and stuff. And it's crazy that we're now, you know, like you say, we've we've passed the seven year mark, and you know there was a time there where we didn't think it, we were going to be able to carry it on. But you know, everybody's come together and stuff, and 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 made it happen for us. And then when we kind of first started doing the hangouts and stuff, it was like that worry of like, oh, like five people gonna kind of you know gonna come on. But you know, each if that <laughs> you know, yeah, each month, like you know, we get like 30, 40 people sometimes. Sometimes you know, ten, fifteen, twenty. But just like you know, seeing new faces, seeing the same faces, stuff like that. It's been absolutely amazing, and I've said it before, I'll say it again, I've genuinely become genuine friends, you know, with a lot of these people, and a few of them are going to be coming to uh, Ravi's Kickstart event in July, and I'm really excited to meet some of the people, you know, in person, and people from across the world as well, who, like, I'm now friends with on socials and talk to, you know, almost every day, and it's lovely yeah. to see, like, what they're kind of doing in their lives and stuff like that, you know, and that's, kind of, like, they get let into our lives a little bit as well. It's really nice. Yeah. I love the fact that we've got like all creeds and all people from around the world, you know, mm. everybody's just united on like gaming technology, you know, and, and, and it's, it's like a universal language that you can, you can talk about. And it's, it's really nice to have that vibe. Yeah, so a massive thank you to everyone who has supports the podcast on Patreon. If you don't already, um, now will be a very good time to sign up. Not only will you get invited to um, this month's patrons hang out but also if you join us as a gold member or above you get access to um a little bonus podcast that we do because we, we don't just do like four or five podcasts a month it's actually an extra one that we do every single month just for our patrons and we call it the retro hour after hours and we've been getting some nice feedback about the uh, the latest episode i think this one uh, not only rattled a few cages but also a lot of people are like mm, yeah yeah i understand what they're talking about there we actually covered piracy 
yeah. in the latest episode you, you, of the Alpha You'll Alpha. have to have to become a patron to hear about all of Dan's crimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just Dan. <laughs> yeah, just me. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I was totally fine. Yeah, like yeah, I did nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, if you're a member of Fast or uh, anything like that, or Elspur, I think it was, wasn't it? Don't sign up. But, you know, um, obviously we kind of talk uh, quite a lot about piracy and the history of it and some of our experiences as well. So, actually, if you join us as a gold member above right now, you get access to, um, I think it's like 33 episodes of The After Hours wow. you can get yeah. now. Um, and of course, there'll be a new episode of that drop in this month as well. So all the details to uh, sign up on Patreon are at theretrohour.com. Now, our patrons in just a minute are going to get a couple of extra news stories for everybody else. We'll be going straight into the interview. Before we do that, let's take a moment to give a massive thank you to our headline sponsor, who um, really, we are so grateful for Bitmap Books supporting this podcast for several years now. Not only do we love Sam and the team over there, but we love their books as well. I mean, when we first agreed, you know, Sam agreed to sponsor us, like, God, must be going back four or five years now. Um, we were overwhelmed that he wanted to work with those costs. We're massive fans of his books anyway, weren't we? Oh. we we'd endorse these, whether we're getting sponsored or not. You know, we had a, a, a thing with all the writers on Amiga Addict and we said, what's yeah. one of your favourite books? And uh, this Commodore Amiga, a visual compendium, which I've got a copy of downstairs, came up as, as one of the top books. It's just absolutely beautiful, as with bitmap books. But, uh, you know, being Amiga, I especially love this one. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, you know, you and I, Ravi, massive Amiga nuts. So this is right up our alley as well. And this is just an incredible book. I've got it next to me right now. Um, and this covers 420 pages. Now, you know, Bitmap Books, they celebrate the visual look of games as well. So this kind of goes through 140 of the biggest Amiga games. Even starting off with the early titles, you remember like the original first Amiga games, like, you know, CinemaWare's Defender of the Crown. Um, you had Marble Madness that came out around that time as well. Then we kind of go into, you know, the Amiga's heyday, stuff like Rainbow Islands, and then go into Populous and Cannon Fodder and Speedball, right up to Worms as well. Just a real celebration of those incredible games back then. And of course, they have quotes and interviews and commentary from renowned Amiga artists, developers, publishers, RJ Michaels in here, David Braben, Sid Meier, Ron Gilbert, loads of people that you'd be familiar with as well. So if you're an Amiga gamer and you're a fan of those classic games and uh, this book is just a real celebration of not only the look of these games but the Amiga itself as well, it's called Commodore Amiga, a visual compendium. You can check out more about that and, uh, of course, support our sponsors. They've been massive, massive help to this podcast over the last few years. So head to their website and check out their full range of retro gaming books at bitmapbooks.com. Okay, next, time to welcome on this week's special guest. Going to be going inside the world of modern Dreamcast development and this uh, amazing new game that's coming out for the Dreamcast soon called Harlequest. With this week's special guest, Ross Kilgariff, is next on the Retro Hour podcast. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. 
You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time to welcome on this week's very special guest. And you know, if you're a regular listener to this show, that we love our indie games, particularly when people are making new games for retro systems, particularly systems as cool as the Dreamcast. And we did cover this uh, game in our news a couple of weeks ago, a brand new hardcore roguelike game with couch co-op coming soon to the Sega Dreamcast, a game called Harlequest. So we thought to find out a bit more about it and developing games on the amazing Dreamcast in 2023. We'd welcome on the man behind it, Ross Kilgary. How are you doing, Ross? Hey, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. So um, before we get into, you know, a bit of the development of making games on the Dreamcast today and uh, this incredible new roguelike that you've made, I mean, we love the look of this game. Kind of winding it back to day one, do you remember kind of what got you into gaming and kind of where your whole journey with video games began yeah so i was probably i want to say four or five years old and uh i was around at a friend's house and i was just transfixed watching him play mario and i remember my parents saying that we should probably get him one of these and then a few i want to say like a few weeks later they brought home a super nintendo uh and i was absolutely delighted fell in love with the thing and uh yeah i would, I would just play it every single day after I started school, I'd play it after I came home. And uh, yeah, just a lifelong love of gaming kind of started there. Nice. So you were, you grew up in Scotland. Was there much of like a gaming scene in the 90s and noughties in Scotland? Was there any arcades still or was it all kind of gone by that point? It was all kind of gone. Um, mm. The only times I played arcades were when I was on holiday with the family. Um, now and then we'd see a, an arcade cabinet in a, like a rec area, a campsite or something. Um, so I, I have some strong memories of arcades from there, but not much in Scotland to speak of. So the Super Nintendo, your first personal home machine. I mean, what was kind of your journey with consoles and computers after that? Then take us through like your next few systems and any memories after that. Oh, wow. Yeah. So um, <laughs> let's see. I might not get the order right, but uh, we had a Sega Mega Drive shortly afterwards. Nice. Um, then Nintendo 64. And then uh, my dad worked at a recycling company for computers. So I actually got a lot of desktop computers as well. We had like a 486 running Windows 3.1. And then we had a Pentium 3. And then I had my own DOS computer. Um, so I've, I've really had like just a wide variety of, uh, of different platforms growing up. So were you interested in programming at all from a young age? Did you kind of like get into, you know, programming languages? What did you start using and stuff like that? Or was that kind of later on? Yeah, I think around the age of nine or 10, uh, I really got into programming. Um, so my uncle was a, I want to say database engineer, um, and mm. he had these just big books about programming. And I was always fascinated by the idea, but um, the books that he lent me were Visual Basic 6 and yeah. Teach Yourself C Programming in 21 Days. And uh, I, I would just pour over these books. I'd go and uh, use my dad's computer in his bedroom, uh, and I would just spend much as I'd spent all my time playing the Nintendo in, in previous years, uh, I just mm. had my head down learning to code. And did it take 21 days? Oh, it took a lot longer than 21 days. <laughs> I think it probably took me about six months to, to be able to write C code at 10 years old. Yeah. That's so impressive. <laughs> yeah, I remember trying to learn, even, you know, basic, I wasn't very good at then trying to learn C. Yeah, couldn't get my head around it at all. So that is impressive doing that at, at 10 years old. I mean, what kind of things were you writing at first then? Did you try making games at home? It's quite funny because like, with Visual Basic, it's supposed to be for making like, you know, form applications where you just fill in text fields. Uh, but I found, in, found out how to make it load uh, things I could make in Microsoft Paint um, and just move mm. them around on the screen. So I ended up making clones of old arcade games that I'd never actually played in the arcade. 
Uh, mm. So things like uh, Pong and Breakout, just drawing you know the ball and the paddles in Microsoft Paint and then bringing them in and writing the code to hook up the keyboard controls. And then in C, I was mostly writing text-based adventure type games because all, all I could write was text console. I couldn't do graphics. Um, so I made a, a handful of games that I, I don't think I have copies of anymore, sadly. But that was that was my first experience. Doing a text adventure is pretty hardcore because um, th- there's so many different routes the player can take, isn't there, in a text adventure game? So you've got to take every eventuality yeah, into yeah. account as well. Yeah, and uh, I, was, I was really into storytelling uh, when I was a kid as well. I'd write my own short stories and uh, that was kind of an outlet to, to tell these stories through, uh, through programming. So did you actually have a Dreamcast at all growing up? Because obviously it's quite a, you know, an obs- not an obscure console, but, you know, obviously it didn't sell too well. And, you know, the, the titles you're working on at the moment are going to be for the Dreamcast. Is, you know, is there an early love there or is it something you discovered much later on? It's, it's kind of something that I aspired to. My friend had a Dreamcast that I played okay. when I went round to his house yeah. and uh, it left this really strong impression on me because the visuals were so crisp and it just had this really kind of fun, upbeat kind of attitude. And I remember thinking that's, that's kind of something totally different to anything yeah. I've played before. But then shortly after that, this was already quite late in its life cycle, the GameCube mm. launched. Yeah. And as soon as the GameCube came out, that took all my attention at the time. It's it's weird because I always kind of saw, even obviously it's Sega and Nintendo, the GameCube always felt like the natural progression of the Dreamcast for me in terms of like the games that were on it and like the kind of visual style of it. But was there any particular titles that stuck out for you on the Dreamcast? Yeah, so I mean, the three that we played uh, at my friend's house were the first Sonic Adventure, uh, Street Fighter Alpha 3. Oh, I know there was a third one, but it's uh, skipping my mind just now. But I remember that it left enough of an impression that it wasn't like anything else I'd seen. And, uh, and yeah. later on, I looked for those games on other platforms. So I ended up getting Sonic Adventure 2 for the GameCube. Yeah. Uh, and I had uh, a variety of Street Fighter games as well. Mm. Was it Soul Calibur by any chance? That always seems to be a standout game for me for just the visuals on the Dreamcast. So interestingly, I actually played Soul Edge in an arcade in France oh, wow. uh, when yeah. I was away uh, on holiday with my parents. And uh Instead of you know going and swimming in the pool with all the other kids, I just spent all of my pocket money on this. Uh, I think it was a second <laughs> Naomi Soul Edge arcade machine. And, That's amazing. Uh, yeah, so that definitely left a strong impression. Yeah, I, that was always me as well. You know, be on holiday in Benidorm or something, and yeah. you'd find me in the arcade <laughs> playing House of the Dead or Soul Blade. It's all that shit. In my shorts playing arcade games while all, all the other kids are in the pool. Yep. Yeah, there's there's a bunch of kids behind me playing table tennis. I think like maybe 10 French kids taking turns, and I was just squeezed up playing Soul Edge. Kind of fun. <laughs> well, you went to um, study computer game technology at university as well. So why did you take that route then? Tell us about your journey into doing that. Yeah, so um, I, I wasn't a very academic kid in high school. Um, I just knew what I wanted to do uh, and everything else felt like it was kind of in the way. Uh, so I just decided, well, what's the shortest route to being able to make games for a living? So mm. I was able to have a conversation with one of the teachers in my high school and they were really uh, a champion of what I wanted to do. Um, so they were able to get me to leave school a year early in a third year in high school. Uh, and then I just went to college to learn maths so I could do linear algebra for games. And the whole time I'd been emailing the head of the course at the university uh, asking, what is the absolute minimum that I need for you to accept me? Like, what, what's the bar that I can, I can get past? Mm. And uh, I think I hadn't heard about game-specific programming courses back then. It was like, this kind of new thing to me. Uh, I hadn't heard of any of my heroes uh, learning, you know, programming from a university, but 
The courses looked fantastic. They had a wide variety of different games made by uh, staff members that were now teaching at the university. So it was quite a uh, quite an alluring thing for someone who'd never even met another programmer in real life, you know. And what kind of games did they have you working on then uh, during the course? So the the very first memory I have from learning at uh, an institution, if you like, was a Saturday course at a college in Glasgow, and it was held by a guy called Sloan Kelly. Uh, I believe he's in Canada now, uh, and he taught uh, how to make breakout in a language called Dark Basic. And he had these handouts with just code printouts telling you exactly what to type. And the idea was that just by kind of typing them and asking questions, you'd learn the language. And uh, that was another point for me of getting hooked on something. So uh, I'd I'd look forward to the Saturday uh, lessons. And then from there, all the way through university, it just increased in complexity year on year. So, uh, you know, we started out with Python and Pygame. So making simple games with that. Uh, and then we moved on to C and C++, which by that point I was already quite familiar with. Um, so I was making, kind of making my own game engines and mm. trying, I really wanted to make an MMORPG. That was like my uh, my goal, but it's such a massive uh, out yeah. of scope project for a teenager yeah. that it was never actually going to happen. But uh, that just the process of chasing that goal was like a massive learning experience. So uh, I, rem- I remember Dark Basic. I was just thinking about that. Yeah. I remember I remember downloading it and having absolutely no idea uh, what to do with it or anything like that. So interesting to hear. So I think you're the first person we've ever interviewed who's mentioned it. So that kind of took me <laughs> back there. So after university, so you'd still be pretty young at this point. So obviously you kind of started early and everything. Yeah. What What was your journey after that? So you went from uni. You, did you go straight into uh, Ninja Kiwi or was there a little bit of a gap there? So for... A little over a year, I actually worked at another student's startup. Uh, there was a guy who was in the same year as me at university, and mm. he'd been able to, to drum up some funds to start a mobile game company. Oh yeah. Um, so he contracted me to work on uh, just getting the getting all the programming done. I was in charge of programming, mm. uh, and that meant that if we were bringing more people on the project, I was also in charge of finding them and getting them kind of set up to be able to make the game. That that was a really good experience because it taught me what not to do very rapidly. I um, mm. made a lot, lot of mistakes early on in terms of dealing with people and teams that uh, I was able to just kind of blitz past all of that. And then at the end, uh, I, I had some of those experiences. One of them was trying to diplomatically talk about uh, how much money we wanted to yeah. uh, spend on different things with different people. And I, I ended up having a kind of negotiation role as well. Mm. So it was uh, it was interesting, but sadly the the game never... Uh, it ran out of money before it was it was ever shipped, mm. uh, but we were working on a terror defense game, which led in quite uh, quite nicely into my position at Ninja Kiwi. Yeah, because I know Ninja Kiwi for and they've been around quite a while, haven't they? I think um, back in the mid two thousands they were formed. I remember they the originally doing like uh, flash games yeah. and stuff back then, and then obviously they kind of moved into mobile development as well, as the name would suggest. Founded in New Zealand, but now uh, is it were they bought by a company in Scotland? Is that how you ended up working with them? Yeah, so I was working for Digital Goldfish. Um, I joined that company in twenty twelve, uh, and then I think about a year and a half after I joined, something like that. Um, we'd, we'd been working with Ninja Kiwi on doing the mobile versions of the Flash games. Uh, mm. And then after the acquisition, uh, we teamed up and became Ninja Kiwi Europe. And at that mm. point, we uh, we had a much kind of closer relationship uh, with uh, the New Zealand team. So what's your role at Ninja Kiwi Europe then? What's your kind of like day job then? <laughs> I, I wear a lot of different hats. Um, my <laughs> main role has been 
on real-time networking communications. Okay. Um, but I've done some server administration, some DevOps, uh, mostly kind of infrastructural or uh, support systems, that kind of thing. So let's get into HarleQuest, mm. um, this incredible game that's actually running on Kickstarter right now when the show comes out. Yeah. We're, um, a few days in, it launched on uh, Saturday Just Gone. So um, obviously I'll put a link in the show notes so anyone that wants to support this can. And um, I encourage everyone to do it because it looks incredible. So this is, it's a new 3D dungeon-like crawler um, coming to the PC. But also the thing that we're really excited about is you're doing a Dreamcast version of this as well. So give us kind of the, the story of HarleQuest and where did the initial concept come from and the idea? Sure. So in uh, 2017, uh, I was taking part in a competition called the Global Game Jam. I don't know if you guys have heard of that before. Mm, yeah. 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 And instead of making a game using one of the, the standard game engines like Unity or Unreal, I thought it'd be really cool to just make something for the Dreamcast and really anything. Uh, yeah. I thought I something I want to learn and it's a good challenge. So, uh, so I decided to put together a simple dungeon crawler tech demo. Um, and I teamed up with Alistair Lowe from Low Tech Games. Uh, so he was doing the 3D modeling and the animation. And I was basically building a game engine for the Dreamcast in two days. Uh, so oh, wow. there was very little sleep <laughs> and uh, a lot of trial and error. And uh, halfway through the competition, I remember the controllers on my Dreamcast stopped working. So I had to grab a screwdriver and get it open and start going in with a multimeter and things. So you burnt them out probably using them too much. Oh yeah, probably. <laughs> it was it was really nuts, but um, it was a great experience because at the end of it, although it was really simple, I had something up and running. I was really proud. But yeah, so that that was the very beginning, and then to become between that and what Harlequest is now, it's been on and off uh, evenings and weekends, me tinkering and just trying out different game ideas, uh, and eventually thought Harlequest is the idea I want to go with. So before we kind of. I've got I've got so many questions off the back of that, but yeah. how how do you kind of like you know obviously you, you've been to university, you've been programming from a young age and stuff like that, but like how do you just kind of like in two days just go right? I'm going to program, I'm going to start programming a game engine, which I understand has developed over the last kind of five years. But how do you just go right? I'm going to start writing for the Dreamcast. How does how does that work for somebody like me who has got no idea about that? Like because that's fascinating yeah. to me. I think it was maybe late 2016. Uh, I'd started mm. reading about the platform, reading yeah. the documentation for uh, how the different parts of the system work. Uh, so the mm. CPU architecture, the uh, the GPU, and uh, you know, obviously very limited. You've got 200 megahertz CPU, 16 megabytes of RAM. Just thinking, how can you use this effectively? Uh, and to begin with, I was using systems that were built for being similar to how you would program a PC. Um, mm. So the com development community have built these systems to make it easier for people. Yeah. Um, but the more that I dug into how they worked under the hood, I started to see things I understood anyway. Like, right. oh, if I just bypass this system, I can I can just send this data directly instead. Um, so I, I kind of had done some prior reading on the system, but I hadn't done any like serious development. So by the time the game jam came around, I already had some knowledge going in. Mm. Um, and at that point, I thought, right, let's just pedal to the metal, try and get this thing working. Um, and I had my my linear algebra textbooks out, and I was uh, I was doing sums and writing code as as fast as I could. But it was a uh, it's a great experience. So why the Dreamcast out of all retro systems? What made you choose that for HoloQuest? There's lots of different reasons for that, and I find that every time I talk about it, I, I go with a different reason. <laughs> um, I think the one that stands out the most to me is 
picking a lower end platform or a limited platform, it really yeah. forces you to be creative. Mm. So anything that you would do on a normal PC, you would feel like, or any modern system really, you'd feel like, I want to make the best use of this hardware. And you'd end up adding extra effects, extra features. For me, I find that I kind of get a little lost with just the amount of sheer, like embarrassing amount of processing power that you have. So picking a retro platform, it allows you to stay focused and pick just the actual things that really make your game good, um, help you just optimize for that system, and just get the best out of it. So I think that's that's the main reason for going retro in the first place. Um, but for specifically the Dreamcast, it has quite a lot going for it. It's like at that exact threshold of you could make any genre of game for this system. You could do any 3D genre and you could do it justice. So that's quite inspiring that if I get a good engine up and running, I could potentially make other genres of games as well. Yeah, I love that. I love the the idea of like it being limited. So, you know, what you can do, you know, what can you get out of this like old machine, this 20, you know, well, 25 year old machine almost now. Yeah. I really, really like that. And I feel like, you know, because it's on, it was on the edge of the sixth generation. I feel like that's the generation which kind of like molded modern games now. So as you say, you can kind of get anything out of that system, if that makes sense, which which resembles a modern game now, if that makes sense, which I think is really cool as well. Yeah, and like with the, the Dreamcast specifically, I remember that because it was cancelled so early, a lot of the potential you would see in the later parts, the later yeah. uh, parts of a, a console's lifespan, you just didn't see for the Dreamcast. Yeah, so yeah, part of me point. thinks, well, what could this thing actually do? You know, if you learn how to really make it work well, could you make games as good as a AAA studio? Could you go further using modern yeah. tools and techniques? That's really cool. So Harley Quest certainly has that classic Dreamcast look to it. What was the kind of design process of the game? Because of uh, <laughs> I heard it started out as Ross Quest initially, and then, was <laughs> like, and then it became Harley Quest eventually. What's the design process there? Yeah, so I mean, after the, the game jam, I just thought, I need to give this a name and I called it Dungeon Ross. Um, and then Ali, uh, Alistair Lowe put versions of me and him into the game. And it was more just as a joke because we didn't have much time left. Uh, but after that was done, we thought, well, how can we make this into something that's kind of takes inspiration from some of the things that I loved growing up. Like I loved the film Hunchback of Notre Dame, um, especially the uh, Court of Miracles scene where you have Quasimodo and Phoebus and they're being kind of held captive by uh, Clopin the Jester. And there's this mm. great kind of attitude of it being really dark and sinister, but quite funny and exciting at the same time. And I thought, right, that's, that's the vibe I want for this game. Uh, so I sent that clip to Alistair and said, okay, we want a Jester character. He should look kind of like this uh, and describe like, my idea for the game world. I'd started writing the design document with that in mind. And yeah, like uh, what he produced was like perfect first time. It often is with him. Uh, so that was that was fantastic inspiration for me because then I could use what he produced to to feed back into the the broader idea, and uh, yeah, no, I'm I'm having a lot of fun because I can, I, I'm definitely not as skilled as he is in terms of 3D modeling and animation, but being able to make characters and add them to the game myself is is really good too. You mentioned about that medieval jester theme there. Yeah, I mean, were there any other games that inspired that as well? Yeah, um, I mean, Pandemonium. I think is is probably top of the list there. Um, I really like Pandemonium. I love the uh, the kind of lighthearted feeling of it, and the way that uh, their jester was just ugly was really funny. Um, 
like the jester from knights was always quite streamlined but the one from uh, pandemonium was quite grotesque so i thought well how, could i kind of get somewhere in between those two designs a, a character that's still appealing to look at but he's just a little bit uh disheveled looking mm-hmm. i think that's quite good so what hurdles and challenges have you had programming for the dream trust Aside from my controller ports not working partway through the, uh, <laughs> the game jam, <laughs> I think the the biggest ones that we're not using official uh, software development kits or APIs on the system. So you have to work with all the knowledge that the community has built over the last 25 years. Um, most of that is very high quality, actually. It's surprising how good it is. Um, but as a as a programmer, you have to be able to read a lot of unstructured forum posts and information and uh, be able to actually understand that, test it, and be able to, to work with it. Uh, whereas if you're working commercially, usually you can look up the documentation provided by the platform vendor and it'll tell you a lot of things about the platform. So it's it's kind of the explorative side of things that's, that's time-consuming. Um, but also, as I said before, with 200 megahertz CPU, 16 megabytes of RAM, uh, you'll make something work on PC and then you go and run it on the Dreamcast and it's a bit slower, it doesn't look as good. So you think, right, how can I really compress and condense this down into something that runs well? Um, and that's an ongoing challenge. That's not something you can solve once because every time you make the game faster, mm-hmm. you also want to add more content to it afterwards. So that'll be an ongoing thing throughout. Well, yeah, I know you're doing like a PC version of it as well. I mean, is there going to be much difference between the Dreamcast and PC versions? Is there like any stuff that you can't do on the Dreamcast that's going to be in the PC one? Or are you keeping kind of the, the strands the same? I'd like to keep both versions as close as I can get them, particularly because I want the Dreamcast version to be the first class citizen. Uh, I think the people who buy the Dreamcast version of the game should be able to get the full experience. And so mm-hmm. I'm intentionally limiting things like the resolution and the frame rate on the PC version. Um, but ideally, we would lock it in at something like 30 frames a second consistently. I think just now on the demo version, we get uh, on the Dreamcast somewhere between 10 and 45 frames per second, depending on what you're doing. Uh, so it would be fantastic to, to just have a really consistent experience. So can you give us an overview of the gameplay mechanics of Harley Quest? Sure. So I really wanted to take things from games like The Binding of Isaac, where you have roguelike procedurally generated dungeons and the kind of exploration and discovery and the way that that's always fresh. But I like the idea of the combat being like a bit more like Dark Souls. So it's technical. You have to think on your feet and pay attention to what the enemies are doing all the time. Um, and it's also really, really hard. So it is expected that you will die. It's not really a lose condition to die in a game like this. Yeah. It's just part of the experience. And there are games like Cuphead that do a really good job of yeah. not making you feel like you want to stop playing. Uh, yeah. If you die, you want to just jump right back in and keep playing. So th- th- those are the goals with Harlequin. Quest. Um, I think right now on the, the Dreamcast build, the frame rate being lower actually makes that gameplay quite challenging because if you can't see all the animation frames of the enemies, then that is harder to do. So that's one of the core uh, core goals or core aims of the, the project is to get the frame rate high enough so that that gameplay type is possible. I think, uh, I think you're spot on there, the, kind of with like the cup head. And like you say, yeah. a little bit with like Dark Souls as well. I mean, it depends how much <laughs> how much you're a sucker for punishment, but having yeah. that right level of like, you know, 
you died because it's your fault as well. It's not the game's fault. Kind of makes yeah. you want to carry on and keep trying as well, um, which, you know, it looks like it's nailing so far, which is really cool. But the game really reminds me of like, um, you know, Gauntlet Legacy and Gauntlet Dark Legacy and also like crossed with Medieval for the PS1. Was that kind of like a purposeful like direction of the game as well, the look of it? I think that all those games have kind of, they've just sunk into my consciousness through the years of mm-hmm. playing them and come out in Harlequest rather than yeah. me intentionally channeling them. Um, yeah. But I was playing the remake of Medieval last night and it, oh, really? it's definitely <laughs> been an inspiration. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good game. Fancy that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a bit more about the other characters in the game. Obviously, you've got the, the medieval jester that you mentioned before as well. I mean, there's quite a colourful set of characters in the game. Um, enemies, particularly looking at the, the screenshots and stuff so far. Can you tell us a bit about those and kind of what inspired those and, and their creation? Yeah, um, they've each been designed and built specifically for a purpose uh, from a gameplay point of view. Any enemy that we add to the game needs to be sufficiently different from the other enemies and they should kind of, their design should telegraph what they do in the world. So the skeleton is nimble on his feet. He'll jump away as you attack him. Uh, the rat scurries around, tries not to attract your attention, but can come in and attack you from behind. Uh, the goblins work in packs and they're quite tenacious. They'll just keep coming for you. Uh, the slimes jump around. Uh, and they'll always jump generally towards you, but they're awkward because they're in the air a lot of the time. Um, and the, the bats will swoop around you and their uh, their timing is very precise. You have to be able to hit a bat as it's coming down. Um, and there's, there's more enemies as well that follow that pattern of each one being different. Um, and from a visual point of view, I really wanted to make them like colorful and like high contrast when you see them next to each other so that when you're in the dungeon, just at a glance, you know exactly what you're dealing with. Um, and then we also have uh, a bunch of boss characters, which we currently have four bosses. Um, but the final game, we're planning to have between five and seven levels. And each one of those levels will have like five dungeon floors with a boss at the end. Um, so there'll be, there'll be plenty to get your teeth into. Nice. And what can players expect in terms of story and kind of world building in Harley Quest? I'm kind of undecided about that so far. What I'd really like to do is have nonverbal communication and storytelling. So instead of having a text box that comes up that you've got to read through, it would be really cool if the characters could use their body language and their facial expressions to tell a story. But the the general gist of the story so far is that the Etienne the Jester was performing for the king and the king took insults in his performance and locked him in the dungeon and just left him there to, to rot, basically. And uh, it's your job as the player to help Etienne escape and uh, maybe get some revenge on the king along the way. Like a good revenge story. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us about, I mean, you mentioned the randomly generated dungeons. I mean, um, does a Dreamcast have much limitations in this model then, or how do you kind of create these? So I actually expected it would. I, I thought that it would be a lot worse, uh, to be honest. But when I started writing it, um, it was surprisingly good. It was very fast. My models aren't particularly complex yet, um, but the plan is to, to have each level type have a different way of generating the layouts. So rather than it just being a reskin when you go from one level to the other, it'll actually feel different. But right now, as I say, because the model isn't that complex, it just runs at load time. So when you load up the demo, it'll just generate um, a bunch of levels. But uh, yeah, I think that's that's going to be great to explore uh, going forward because it's one of the like key parts of the roguelike genre is how do you actually structure your levels. But something I didn't want to do is just lock it to a grid. I love the idea of having like branching paths, um, cycles where you can 
backtrack to go back to a previous room for certain reasons. Um, there's scope as well for traps and puzzles that I'm quite excited about. So tell us about the music and sound design as well. So how do you go about creating an audio experience? What I wanted to do with uh, the sound design is have music that's upbeat, but also quite dark and menacing, much like the visual style. And I wanted to be able to overlay the more tense parts of the game with the more serious music and then have the more kind of, here's a breather in between two rooms, have that become a bit more lighthearted again. And that way it's not all intensity all the time, but mm. it, it's a nice kind of mix as the player's moving through the world. So the Dreamcast community is obviously a very passionate retro community. Have they responded to Harley Quest so far then and have they um, give you much feedback on it? Yeah, it's really been awesome. It's really, really cool. Um, so I'm not that experienced with marketing and I didn't know how it was going to go uh, making a new game and promoting it, um, especially before the game's finished. It's, it's kind of difficult to talk in detail about something as you're working on it. Um, but people have just been like universally positive it uh, seems like a lot of people really want to see it happen. And that's been a massive motivation for me as well. Um, so the Dreamcast development community have basically welcomed me in. And uh, because uh, I did some work on porting low-tech games, uh, Flea and Tapeworm to the Dreamcast. Oh, wow. Um, and some of the tools that I used to do that at the time were made open source. And so I was able to give some support to the community through that. Um, but yes, I've been able to talk to the Driving Strikers guys and... Uh, Ian Michael and the Elysian Shadows guys and basically just get to know everybody from there. And a big part of the player base and the feedback has come from the development community as well as the player community. You put the demos up on your website, don't you? There's a, the CDI files that people can download to the CD and play on the machines. Yeah, yeah. So I imagine people have been trying it out that way. Yeah, people have been uh, jumping on and trying the game. Uh, they'll play it on real hardware, record themselves playing, send in screenshots and bullet point lists of, of what they think and uh, yeah, it's it's fantastic. That's awesome. So, what what do you, why do you think the Dreamcast is such a loved platform? You know, by retro gamers today, what do you think that it is about the Dreamcast and its you know community? I think it, probably everyone has a different reason. The one that I think of the most is you see even in modern games that looks like a Dreamcast game. It's really hard to pin down, but it's things that are visually bright. Uh, they're usually quite fast and just very entertaining. I think that the draw towards a Dreamcast-style game is something that makes the Dreamcast different to all the other systems. Um, and as well, the, the untapped potential of the platform, I think, draws people in as well because it's so, uh, it's so ripe for new things. It still feels very much alive, you know? Yeah, it does kind of feel like it was cut down in its prime a bit, doesn't it? Because yeah. uh, it was a system that I remember back then didn't get a lot of love because everyone was so hyped about the PS2. But now it seems, you know, whenever I see those lists of like, you know, the top five retro systems of all time, the Dreamcast always in there. So it seems like it's definitely developed probably even more of a following over the last 20 years, maybe, than it originally did. Yeah. And especially within the last maybe two or three years, uh, I love yeah. what um, Wave Game Studios have been doing uh, over here. And we're going with Wave for the, for the Harlequest physical release as well. Um, it's just great to see so many new games on the system. Well, tell us about that then, because that's quite interesting. So I know originally the, the Dreamcast games were shipped on the... Uh, proprietary GD-ROM format, which um, I know is whether, I don't even know if there are any facilities for burning GD-ROMs today, but how do you go about producing a game and how do you send a Dreamcast game to production physically in 2023? What, what's kind of the story there? So 
when I'm developing the game, I actually just use the broadband adapter over the network to send builds uh, and to test them. Uh, you can burn to any CD-ROM and you can distribute using any normal CD-ROM as well. Uh, so it's incredibly uh, easy to distribute games. And it's it's quite, a, it would be nice to have the extra space with an actual GD-ROM, uh, but from a production standpoint, it's just way simpler to use CDs. Um, mm. But one of the reasons for me going with Wave Game Studios is they know a lot more about that process than I do. Um, so I'm quite happy to to hand that off to them. Fair enough. <laughs> you, you don't need like approval from Sega or anything these days, I imagine. <laughs> no, well, there's a there's a licensing screen that comes up when you boot up the game. It's the same for all Dreamcast games, and it does have yeah. to say licensed by Sega in order for the game to boot. But the standard practice is to have another image next to it that says not actually licensed by Sega. And so the two kind of cancel each other out. <laughs> Just to cover both. both yeah. That's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> so um, how important is Couch Co-op to you in a world of online gaming, You know, a world where we've kind of lost that kind of gameplay? I absolutely love Couch Co-op. Um, I still gravitate towards games that you can play with your friends on a couch yeah. today. So games like Overcooked or Cuphead, mm. where you can just jump in and people yeah. of like different skill levels can just have a good mm. time. And online play is fantastic. It's a big part of my day job is making sure online play goes smoothly. Um, and people are doing great things in the online space for Dreamcast now. But Couch Co-op is definitely my focus for, for Harlequest. I'd love for people to be able to teach each other how to play. If you've got some players that are very good and other players that are learning, I think word of mouth and couch co-op would be like the best possible way to, to experience it. Well, it is running on Kickstarter now, um, only a couple of days in um, when this episode comes out. And, you know, Kickstarter is a great way to for the community to support these projects as well and get them over the line. So tell us a bit about the Kickstarter then. What do you need to make this game happen? Sure. So um, for full disclosure, I am actually continuing the development of the game regardless of whether the Kickstarter succeeds. But the big question is whether we can get enough funds to make it the game that I have in my head. Can I make this the, the project that I really want it to be? Um, so I've got some, some savings set aside to work on it either way, but with your support, we can make it something really awesome. Um, so the Kickstarter, we have a few different tiers. We've got um, just like a goodies pack if you want to support the project, but you're not really that fussed about the game, that's still appreciated. Um, if you want just a digital edition, you can buy Dreamcast CDI image. You'll get a manual as a PDF, uh, and you'll get a Steam key as well to play on PC. Uh, we have another tier, which is your actual physical edition of the game, um, and it'll come with all the things you would expect, including the soundtrack. Uh, and then we do have a collector's edition and developer's edition as well as our, our higher tiers. Are there going to be any stretch goals on the Kickstarter or anything that you really want to aim high for? Yeah, so I've got three stretch goals uh, defined just now. It might change by the time we launch, uh, but currently we're looking at a Nintendo Nintendo Switch version, PlayStation and Xbox versions, and nice. vinyl figures are the three things I want to aim for. And when, I'd love a Switch version. Yeah, I'd love a Switch version as well, to be honest, or even an Xbox version, because if I love my achievements, that would be really nice. Um, so when can backers expect to get the game? What's the kind of release date aim at the moment? The aim that I have penciled in is October next year. Mm. That's where I'd like to have everything done and dusted. So it could be a nice little uh, early Christmas present for Dreamcast fans next year. Yeah. 
Very nice. Well, uh, Ross, we wish you all the best of luck with it. I mean, I mean I'm sure all the Dreamcast community and anyone that loves these kind of retro roguelike experiences is going to jump all over this. So, of course, I'll, uh, I'll link it up in our show notes as well. I mean, kind of looking beyond this, and obviously it's probably consuming all of your free time now. I mean, have you kind of got any you know plans for future games or projects, whether they're going to be related to Harley Quest or something entirely new that you want to do in the future? I've got a couple different ideas. Um, I quite like the cozy game genre. Uh, it's like Animal Crossing and that kind of thing. Totally different mm. from Harley Quest. Um, so I'd like to explore that next, I think. Well, we'll have to get you back on, Ross, when, uh, when that one's ready to uh, be announced. Oh, sure thing. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, best of luck with the Kickstarter. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes so everyone can just uh, click straight through to it. Um, and we can't wait to play it. So uh, good luck, Ross. Thank you so much for coming on and reminiscing a bit with us and telling us about the uh, development of Harley Quest. It's been great to talk to you. Yeah, thanks so much. 